Welcome to a special bonus episode of Paranormal Activity with me, Yvette Fielding. Yvette investigates. And this month's investigation is all about a creature that is said to make its home in the Scottish Highlands. Let's take a look at the big grey man. Well, I'm joined today by Andy McGrath, who is a cryptozoologist. Uh, he's also a, a podcaster. Um, he's a field investigator. He's written various books, including Beasts of Britain. And of course, he has a new book out called Beasts of the World. Now, he's been an enthusiast um, of all things beastly and has spent over 25 years researching the unknown beasts that have captivated millions of us over the years. Welcome to the show, Andy. Andy, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Wonderful. Now, um, I just want to ask you, because it's a really unusual field to get into, isn't it? So when did you first start? When did your passion for this subject really begin? Well, I was a teenager. And like many other teenage boys of my generation, I think reruns of things like In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy and mysterious world with Arthur C. Clarke mm. were, uh, were still running and I was just captivated really by things like the Loch Ness Monster or um, the Yeti, the Bigfoot, Ogopogo. I just wondered to myself, could these things possibly exist? And that got me started searching in libraries and keeping newspaper clippings of various stories that would, you know, sensational stories that would enter the papers from time to time. And I, I've just been with it ever since. And one thing, while I was doing my little bit of research on you, I discovered a, uh, a piece in the paper where it says that you're uh, in an ongoing debate with your daughters over the existence of these yeah. strange beasts like the Loch Ness Monster. And, and one of your daughters actually yeah. refers to the Loch Ness Monster as Nessie Nonsense. <laughs> Mm, nasty nonsense. I mean, she's, bless her, she is such a smart cookie and uh, too smart to be my child. <laughs> and um, she just, you know, she just sees everything logically. And we had this great conversation. And I said, look, um, I'll just call her daughter number one to protect her name. Look, daughter number one, um, it's not just a Loch Ness Monster. These same descriptions are given by people in cultures all around the world before there was media, before there was news that was connected, and they're always very similar to one another. How do you explain that? And she said, well, people have believed in dragons and fairies in a similar way all over the world since time immemorial. And she said, and that doesn't make it true. I said, well, we have an answer for that. You've got me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a cool thing, isn't it, to have a dad who does what you do. I mean, you know, even though she's sort of like, perhaps debating you on the subject, which sounds absolutely brilliant. But I mean, it, it is a cool thing. You know, I can imagine, you know, when uh, something happens in the news and she's at school and she might think to my dad will know a, a lot about that. I mean, that's fantastic, isn't it? It is. And it's really nice. And I have a similar exchange with the younger one who's six, who 100% believes in mermaids and fairies and the rest. And we have this little joke between us where the older sister will say, that's nonsense. And she'll turn to me quietly and say, are they really real? I said, yes. Oh. <laughs> That's fantastic. So let's, again, going back. So you were young and like me, you know, Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, everybody listening now, will I bang on about that program all the time because it sort of started my oh, fascination yeah. off into the paranormal world as well. But looking at all of the different beasts, I mean, we've talked about many of them on this show. Um, 
What for you is the most fascinating evidence that you have seen or you yourself have uncovered where you just are scratching your head saying, there can't be any other logical explanation for this. It has to be some sort of um, unknown beast. You know, it doesn't make it mythical. It doesn't make it otherworldly. It's just something that we've not been able to name yet or understand. Mm. Well, for me, I think, I'm, although I'm primarily, I started as a, a lake monster fan, that that was my Loch Ness monster. Those are one of my primary subjects. It's the, in the Bigfoot subject, and there's a lot of fakery that goes on in the Bigfoot subject, but it's the footprints that have dermal tentacles, the footprints that have dermal ridges in them. You can see individually, and of course our feet have, and primate feet have these these fingerprint-like ridges that are very specific and individual to each one of us. And when I find footprints like that with these dermal ridges that are very distinct and differ from one set of footprints to another in a different location, you have to ask yourself, well, what kind of um, amazing hoaxes and fakers do we have out there really to go to the trouble of creating these really almost imperceptible dermal ridges on footprints and that to me is is probably the strongest evidence we have other things like footage like hair even um you know physical samples that have been claimed over the years they've all fallen apart under the microscope they've all they've all been proven fake or hoax or inconclusive but those those footprints really really do stand out as something very special. And do you get frustrated because I get frustrated in the in the paranormal world um, where I'm talking about you know, paranormal activity and ghosts and so on. Do you get frustrated when you do find these amazing footprints? Um, nobody can explain it in a certain area. Let's say Alaska, for instance. Um, do you get frustrated with um, other scientists, people, governments, as it were, that they they don't sort of put the manpower in or the money behind trying to find out what these things possibly could be? Because I know if I was you, I'd, I'd be pulling my hair out by now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I used to get frustrated. And I think that's because I used to sit in the camp of of a believer of sorts. And you probably know from your perspective of research as well, there tends to be sometimes a philosophical slant to different researchers, something that they want to believe to be true. And therefore, we can feel personally slighted, you know, by a rejection of great evidence that we find. Personally, for, I, for me, I think it's, it's a big ask. You know, we're asking the scientific community to get involved in something that has a real fringe element to it and also has lots of denominations of belief attached to it, which could be uh, detrimental to their careers. You remember in the old days, a lot less monster researchers, people coming up from the Natural History Museum, losing their jobs, or at least getting a stern talking to for being involved in the search for the monster. So I think that's, it's not unexpected. You know, really, we're going to have to find something that's uh, indisputable, that everybody wants to jump on top of all of the scientific community. And once they do, then we have to make sure that that door is open for them. When, when no told you so, it's just welcome in and uh, to the party. And here you go. Here's the evidence. Please 
please let us know what your conclusions are. It's interesting that you say that because um, I've had that scenario happen to me. So I sort of had a um, a well-known parapsychologist um, on uh, an investigation, uh, well, many investigations. And I particularly remember there was one where it was indisputable what we had um, filmed, what we were all experiencing. And the parapsychologist was blown away by, you know, this evidence and I remember off camera, we were saying, well, you know, this surely has got to be proof that there is life after death. And he said, I agree with you. I agree with you. He said, but I can't publicly say it. He said, because I'll be slaughtered. And that, there you go. Exactly what you said, because he was actually thinking about his career within academia. And there's this fear, isn't there, of sort of, well, I don't want to be the first one to say that you know, this is real because I could lose my job. I could use my, I could, you know, lose my whole reputation um, and people won't want to touch me. And isn't that sad? Yeah, I think it is very sad, but then we have to, we have to look at it from their perspective. This is their career. This is their life. And, and yes, the evidence might be very compelling, but it takes a certain, I think a really special kind of person and almost a protected person to go that extra extra mile. So for instance, somebody like uh, Professor Jeff Meldrum in the US, who's a professor of anthropology at Idaho, Idaho State University, he came out publicly after discovering some some footprints, and that's one of his specialist areas, uh, in Washington that appeared to be you know 15 inches long, non-human, but belonging to a bipedal primate of some kind. He came out and said he believed in Bigfoot. He's lectured on it since he's researched it since. Immediately, everybody, all of his colleagues in the university tried to push him out. Mm. They'd started a campaign to get rid of him, to push him out of the university. Fortunately, he had tenure, so they couldn't. Mm. But I wonder how different it is for other you know, professionals, professors and other uh, notable um, scientists in the community to take that risk, to take that chance. And it's, you know, every, all of us, we all hope that someday some brave soul yes. will come out and say, yes, you know, I believe you guys and I, I'm going to stake my reputation on it. But sadly, that's that's rarely the case. That bravery yes, is in short supply. Absolutely. I mean, you look at Einstein, you know, I mean, he went through the mill, didn't he? Sort of you know, his sort of peers and um, other people that were above him at the time when he wasn't quite, you know, as famous as he, as he did become, you know, and he was trying to prove his theories and so on. And in, at the beginning, he was almost scoffed at and laughed at, you know. Mm. And I think anybody, you're quite right, that's trying to say, look, actually, I'm being brave here. I'm putting my name on the, on the line. Um, I, you know, will get most of the time rebuffed, um, laughed at, and they do run this massive risk of, of never working again. So you're absolutely right. It, it does take a, a very brave person and, and also ridicule as well, not just from their peers, but also from the public, mm. you know, and especially dealing what, in what we deal with, you know, yes. um, you know <laughs> oh, you know, yeah, a lot less monsters real. And then they turn around <laughs> and say, oh, this crackpot, you know, they're absolutely nuts, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. we love to pull people down, don't we? I don't know if, you know, it's a human trait all over the world, but we do love to sort of pull people down and say, what a load of old nonsense. It's such a shame, isn't it, why we do that? It, it is a shame, but I find um, that there was a growing, uh, in, in, um, in the median 
the median uh, section of society now. They're not people interested in special things like the paranormal or cryptozoology. There's a growing interest in this subject. And I think it's post-lockdown when everybody was locked inside and starting to say, you know what, I want to start to think about the wider world for a sense of escapism. And I noticed for myself personally during that period, there was this huge uptick in interest in my page, in my books, and what I was doing. Whereas before, I was kind of in no man's land, you know, singing to the birds. <laughs> um, and people you know, generally are interested. And I had one funny uh, encounter recently. I was at um, I was at a uh, an event at a, a, a local synagogue, and um, my children were there. My my wife was there, and all these lovely people there. And they're mixed. It was a mixed synagogue, so a mixed bag of people from everywhere. And this very posh-looking gentleman uh, in a nice suit, who was about 75, QC, I think he was a QC, he leant over to me and whispered in my ear, I saw your, um, I saw your Bigfoot show on, uh, on Blaze, and I really enjoyed it. I just wanted to tell you that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> he seemed to be the most unlikely person in that room to have known me or to, to have seen something I've done at all, but also to have been interested in the subject. And there he was, you know, sort of a, a barrister of some description. I don't know what his his uh, his uh, area was. Just saying, hey, there's that guy I watch on TV. Let's have a chat. And I really enjoyed it. And and people like you and people like me were very popular at dinner parties when people find out exactly what it is that you do. Yeah. And do you find that when you tell them, oh, this is what I do, this is, you know, I really enjoy this, I've written books about it, they will then say, well, I have a friend who's seen this or I've experienced that. And and people absolutely love it, you know. I mean, I for one would love to have you at a dinner party because I think we could talk all night about this uh, subject. Awesome. <laughs> so going back to being them. Um, when you actually hear of uh, a new beast, perhaps, um, you know, or new foot, footprints that have been captured or strange uh, noises heard in the dead of night or just mysterious circumstances where eyewitnesses are reporting either a Bigfoot mm. or, or, you know, um, they can't describe exactly what it is, what they've seen, but it's not human. Um, what's the first thing that goes through your head? Is it sort of like, right, get me my rucksack. Uh, I'm off. You know, what do you do? I am strangely the first thing I start doing is digging a little into the background of the person. <laughs> I try to find their Facebook page and information about them. And just because, of course, there's a lot of hoaxing that goes on. And sometimes people just want something to have happened. So I try to look into their background to see if there's, is there a bit of a Bigfoot on the brain phenomenon going on here? Is, is every single post on their, their page Bigfoot, Bigfoot, Bigfoot? Or, you know, are they just a, some straight-laced person working in the city or, or somewhere else? and I do a little digging, then I chat to them. I ask them different questions about the, the sighting in a conversational kind of way, in maybe three or different formats, naturally going over the same details to see if anything has changed in the story in a natural way, not, not interrogative, but just chatty in a chatty format. And once I'm satisfied, I, I try to get out there and have a look if I can. And um, you know, time and time again, I've been surprised, even here in the UK, by how how genuine some of the witnesses are and how they're in almost a, a sort of a, a PTSD state after the sighting where they're saying, I, I couldn't have seen what I saw, but I know I saw it. 
And even with things like big cats, which there, of course there are a lot of sightings like that in the UK, I couldn't have seen what I saw, but I, I know it happened, but I don't believe it. And that's a strange position to be in when you're doubting your own senses. And that to me is a very genuine thing. You can feel that the person is genuinely shocked. You can feel that they, they, they're looking to you for answers. What did I see? Can you, you know, can you help me explain this? So those are some of the first things I, I look for. As I mentioned at the beginning, you are a field investigator, so you will go out to these places where people have seen things and experienced things. So what do you do? Do you, how, how long do you spend out there? What are you exactly looking for? Normally, if, if they've had a sighting in a certain place, if they can take me or direct me to the exact location, which is sometimes difficult in forests and other places like that, that's understandable, I will try to go out there and look for signs of, of movement, look for footprints. Uh, so if it was a Bigfoot sighting, I would look for footprints in the area where they were supposed to have been sighted. These creatures are supposedly quite heavy set and thick uh, built creatures. So that's one of the main things. I would look for hairs, for example, even scat animal bones, anything like that. If the area seemed to have some, or oh, broken branches and other things, of course, if the area seemed to have some evidence of habitation or movement, let's say it, it at least looks like some big animal has been through here. I might set up a, a game camp, for instance, somewhere in the area, usually high up. I prefer to put them high up facing down because that's out of the sight of any animals passing through and see if I can capture anything. Um, unfortunately, to date, I never have. <laughs> but um, I have, you know, I have noticed some strange indentations from time to time in some of the places I've been and whether that's been made by a, a normal animal like a deer or something else, I don't know. Absolutely fascinating. What, what about the theory? Because I'm a huge ancient alien um, fan. And you mentioned at the beginning about, you know, your daughters and talking about, you know, they've always been, as she's quite rightly, you know, she quite rightly said, there's always been dragons and, you know, these mythical beasts and so on. And when I watch programs like Ancient Aliens, they do talk about these amazing mythical beasts, but they actually say, you know, it, it goes back through time, doesn't it? There's ancient scripts where there's they've had drawings of these fire-eating dragons in the sky or, you know, there's a god in India. I've forgotten what the name of the god is, but they're allegedly on some sort of fireball standing above that, you know, could look like a serpent breathing fire and so on. So, so and, and a lot of these people believe, you know, could these be, you know, UFOs, but of course, back in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, um, they wouldn't have known what that thing was. They wouldn't have known what a mechanical thing was that, you know, um, had fire coming out of the exhaust propulsion and so on. So they would have seen it as a dragon or a serpent or something flying in the sky. What's your take on that ancient alien theory and, and putting the dragons and serpents and so on into, into that um, part there? I, I think that comes down to perspective again in philosophy. So one of the, with let's say for instance, um, fiery flying ships in the sky, something like that. You remember in the New Testament when Jesus is taken up to heaven, they say he's taken up to heaven in the cloud and hidden from their sight. Now, cloud obviously could just be a generalized description for some sort of vehicle that elevated him to the heavens, right? And that could be the way that it was just. It, Describe, but those people had no idea what they were looking at. 
other more religious people would say, well, you know, no, these are angels and demons and whatever else you know you want to call them, instead of aliens. You know, that I suppose that the character character can change with, um, based upon your own personal philosophy. For me, from the cryptozoological side of things, I think you know there are lots of animals out there that we've discovered in recent or recent enough times, like the coelacanth, like. Um, Neo Capi, uh, the Komodo dragon, the gorilla, for goodness sake, that was only the 1800s. And there could still be other animals out there, either animals we think have become extinct or animals we've never yet classified. I think it's important as a cryptozoologist for the, for the beginning of that, at least, that we try to discover flesh and blood things, things that are natural and going beyond that explanation, maybe as in the case of the werewolf or dogman or whatever people want to call it, if there is another explanation we, that doesn't fit into the natural order, then we can look at that once we've exhausted this, this possibility first. You look at all the undiscovered lands, for instance, you know, part of the Amazon, millions of, of, of um, hectares, acres of, of undiscovered uh, lands within um, the Amazon. Who's to say what creatures, what animals are in that particular part of the world that have never, ever been discovered? I mean, is that something, if somebody said to you, right, Andy, uh, we're going to we'll do it, we're going to pay you, we want you to go there with a team we want you to spend you know mm. six months in this part of the amazon that's never been discovered before not sure if we'll be able to pick you up you might get lost would you go <laughs> would you go <laughs> well it's, it's funny you should mention that because um my myself and um the producer of monster quest doug hycheck we've been pitching one of uh, our new shows for the last couple of months called beastly theories so we've been meeting with the networks about that to say we would like to take this show all over the world to meet with researchers in their locale, whether it be the Congo or um, you know the Amazon or in the Himalayas, and discover what makes them tick and why they think their evidence is so uh, compelling. So the answer is yes. It's already yes. Um, I would I would go tomorrow if they say yes. If they buy it, we will. We will happily go out there and do it. Oh, well, good luck with that. I know how difficult television can be. And so I honestly, I've got everything crossed for you. And and I hope that uh, we'll be watching that on our TV screens very soon. Out of all the beasts that you've researched, or perhaps, you know, your eyewitnesses that you talk to who are, they, you know, just from listening to you talking, they really believe, and I believe that they've seen it because, you know, I honestly, you can't believe in something that you haven't seen or experienced yourself. So when people actually say, I know I saw it, then that for me is, well, 100%, they've seen something. Which is your favorite story or your, you know, which encompasses the favorite beast as well? My my favorite story here in the UK, actually, was made by a primate keeper. I had worked as a primate keeper in British zoos for 37 years. And he and his brother in 2012, they were camping in Scotland in Abernethy Forest, a Strathspace Forest in Abernethy. And they had, uh, they were wild camping. They used to take light arms, uh, small guns out to hunt rabbits in the morning. And one morning they woke up nice and early at dawn and they headed out to a field where they'd seen lots of rabbits and there were lots of blackberry bushes there. And they thought, well, this will be good. We'll find something here. Now, these two brothers, they're walking uh, through the field and suddenly, the lead brother, the primate keeper, 
doesn't hear his brother's footfall anymore. And he turns around and sees him looking into the, the distance with his mouth wide open. Now, he thinks, what's, what's he looking at? And he looks over and sees a large black furry shape about his height. He was only 5'2", but his height hunched over a blackberry bush. It looks like it's eating. He wonders, now what's this? Suddenly, it stands up, turns to face them. And it's what he can only describe as a huge primate that he's never, ever seen before. As a body, like a gorilla, only with long man-like legs, a huge broad chest, and a face he described as being something like an older bonobo, slightly balding on the top with a, a pink lip, but a flat, a flatter face, almost, almost no muzzle at all. And he, you know, um, looked at it. He said he'd never been so scared in his life. It, it never took a step towards him. It wasn't threatening at all. Uh, but he dropped his his gun down or his light arm, and he dropped to one knee and thought, oh my God, what am I looking at? And it just turned and walked away into the bushes, glancing over his shoulder uh, at him. You know, I was supposed to check where he was once or twice before disappearing into the bush. And you know, he ran back to the campsite. He turned around, his brother was already gone. He ran back to the, to the car just to find his brother camping out, uh, packing up all of the gear and everything and saying, well, you know, we're going, I'm not gonna stay and look for this thing. And he was convinced and he got in touch with me about the sighting a few years ago to say, you know, I'm, I'm an experienced primate keeper. I do not recognize what I saw that day, but I know for sure that it was a simian. It was a primate. How amazing is that? And that that and and I suppose in your mind, because he was a primate keeper, he knows his stuff. And that for you, you know, like you said at the beginning, you'll be checking him out, making sure that he's the real deal. How can you not believe his story when he says things like that to you? You must have been like bowled over with that. I was, I was, and I, I, I tried desperately to get him on camera for many, many years or on tape, but you know, he that was as public as he wanted to be. You know, he gave me the story and that's, that's nice. I, I know his name. So I was able to trace his, his career and the zoos that he worked in. But I mean, this is remarkable. And to me, um, things like the big gray man of Ben McDree and um, other British Bigfoot tales, and there are lots of them around the country, were always uh, a side effect of the, of the American phenomenon. Oh, this is because programs like Finding Bigfoot and other things, everybody loves Bigfoot now, this last 10 years. And I'm thinking to myself, these sightings are probably based upon that somehow. You know, this is why we, we're getting these sightings all of a sudden. But to get that from him, it's like, well, no, I'm a primate keeper. I'm an experienced person. These things are here in the UK. And that was, uh, that was, yeah, an eye opener. Wow. So that's that. I'll be telling my family that over dinner. That's absolutely f fascinating to me. Now, you mentioned the big grey man. Now, we've been doing a bonus episode all about that. Just quickly, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's people hallucinating their high altitude? Do you think it's that, you know, the, the same phenomena that we've described as the miss, you know, rain, but, you know, the same refra light refraction and so on? The, or are the they really, yes, effect, yeah. or are they really seeing this enormously tall grey man? It's, it's hard to say with the grey man because there are a lot of legends in that part of the world. And of course, that some of these legends, similar to the legends of the wood woes, of these big forest creatures, you know, the green men, the wood woes, these ancient 
uh, depictions that we find on our, our noble heraldry and our churches carved everywhere, is this perhaps a, a reanimated uh, legend come back to life? Or is it something to do with high altitude hallucinations? You know, I mean, there is the possibility that you could be experiencing some kind of lack of oxygen at that height. I mean, it's not the highest mountain in the world, so it's it's not like you're an Everest and waking out. But I think it could be something to do with that type of strange landscape. You know, the mist rolls in really, really quickly. There could be some sort of meteorological effects in that area that prey upon our, you know, our senses or even you know our sense of well-being. A lot of people speak about being uh, chased down the mountain by a feeling. Yes, or that's being strange, isn't it? Compelled to throw themselves yeah. over the side of the mountain and wondering why that's happening. Um, in the sightings, there doesn't seem to be a lot of face-to-face -face sightings. The ones that are face-to-face -face seem to describe a creature that is um, ten to twenty feet tall, which seems to be really beyond any mm. comparable Bigfoot height, um, covered with thick grey or olive or brown short hair with pointed ears, broad shoulders, long arms, and long legs, and finger-like talons. Oh, it sounds absolutely petrifying. The, mm, I know. I mean, the tracks The tracks are supposed to be 19 inches long by 14 inches wide, and apparently James Allen Rennie photographed a series of tracks in the snow in 1952 in December, and, and these were these really long tracks. Um, they, said they were traveling in a perfectly straight line on the mountain. At one point, they even appeared to have jumped a distance of 30 feet over a road that may have been an obstacle of some kind. So there are, you know, there are sightings, there are claims that camps have been ripped up and people have been harassed, but mostly it's this big shadow, you know, like the glory, like the broken spectre effect. It's this crunching of footsteps when yes. the mist comes in yeah. and this eerie feeling that you have to get out of there. And more significantly, there hasn't really been any active sightings in the area for a very, very long time. Is that somewhere that you would consider going, perhaps, if there was a more recent sighting? Yes, yes, I would. I mean, there, there have been other sightings in Scotland in that time. So there's that sighting I mentioned in uh, Stras Bay Forest mm. in Abernethy. There was also a sighting I was given um, last year and that happened in Aberdeenshire in 2019. And... Uh, I won't mention the location. She wants it kept secret. But a uh, family, they were they were camping, not camping. They were standing, uh, staying in the chalet in Aberdeenshire, in a holiday cottage. They were just the countryside. They noticed, you know, all the time that the dogs were going crazy. That there was lots of eerie sounds around at night. And the the mother walked into the kitchen to get some ice cream uh, for the family while they were watching a movie one night and looked into the corner of her eye and said, saw what she said was a large chimpanzee face filling up one square of the, the bottom window and tapping its finger against it and watching her. And she said it almost looked like it was beginning to snarl and she just froze and walked out of the room and shut all of the doors and said nothing to anybody in fear that her husband or sons would go and try to see it, I suppose. And um, I mean, that's... That's an extraordinary sighting. And terrifying as well. Absolutely petrifying. Terrifying. Yeah. Oh, my yes. goodness. I, terrifying. Could, I could talk to you all afternoon. And can I just say you have yes. a lovely, lovely voice. Fabulous. Oh, thank Very you. insightful and absolutely fascinating. And I, I, like I say, I should be chatting about uh, me talking to you with my family later on. Absolutely enthralling. Thank you very much for your time. Very lovely to meet you. Take care. 
seeing is believing and there's definitely something going on here, isn't there? I mean, I'm not jumping so quickly to the logical explanations, weather and fog. I'm thinking that all these people have experienced something that has surprised and frightened them to the point where someone shot at it. What that is, is the big question. And I think we should all keep an open mind into the possibilities that there could be some kind of strange creature, man, beast, whatever we want to call it. It's out there. I've no doubt. <laughs> 